been an exciting couple of weeks in space, Andrew. It has, Katie. By the time people hear this episode, the Axiom crew, this is a private space crew that went to space on a SpaceX capsule by the Axiom company, is going to have been up to the space station, spent 10 days, and landed, which I think is awesome. I I was just about to ask what you thought of that as somebody that's been up on the International Space Station, because there's all this controversy about are they tourists? Are they just rich guys going up there? Are they scientists? Was this a good thing? Well, first, I'm going to put out a plea there for more women, okay? Okay. Seriously, right? (laughs) But as somebody who's lived up there, the resource that is the shortest in supply, because we have extras of everything, is crew time for experiments. It's it's an astonishing fact, but there. But by the time you do maintenance and you know organize things and all that kind of stuff, there is actually not as much time left to do experiments. And the more time we have, the more we learn. It's so really clear. This was really just like a bunch of rich interns going up there. It was extra hands, just like we have with student interns. I was going to call them graduate students. Okay. Okay. All oh, right. But, They're a little bit more than interns. You know, but seriously, but, but you're hands... still welcome. If you were up there, <laughs> if you were up there, you'd think, "Hallelujah!" A bunch of extra people to do the work that we're all trying to do. When you're up there, it's it's really clear that every single little data point that you get means something, and there's just not enough time. And so, when four more people, willing sets of hands and hearts and minds, show up. That is a good thing. And actually, it segues into what I've been tracking this week, which is not new people going up to the International Space Station, but virtually beaming people up. So I don't know whether you saw this, but um, there was um, this talk of NASA holoporting a bunch of doctors up to the ISS. And by holoporting, I mean the the folks up on the International Space Station um, put these virtual reality glasses on, and they actually had real 3D images of people beamed up to them, so it looked like they were actually there in the space station. I saw this. At first, I saw the title, okay, of like one of the articles, Beam Me Up, Scotty, right? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) NASA flight surgeon. Well, but it's the people and and actually thinking about what people need when they're living, you know, on a space station, that's a good place to try this out. What do people really need? And right. I mean, does it help to have your doctor seem like, you know, he or she is actually right there looking at you, listening and going, oh, you mean this? It's everything. So I'm so interested to hear you say this because I read this and I thought, this is... I. Uh, I thought it was a bit of fluff. I was a little cynical over it. But to hear you speak, who's actually been up there, I hadn't really thought of how important it is to have that three-dimensional, visceral interaction with somebody. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. On today's show, we continue with part two of our series, How Can We Make Space More Accessible for Disabled People? And you don't need to have listened to part one of this series to understand this cool episode. But if you enjoy today's conversation, do be sure to go back and check out part one. I've been so excited about this series, Andrew, because this is is a group that's really making a difference. And I think just supplying a perspective that at least I never had. It is. And to be honest, and I've said this a couple of times, this conversation changed how I think about space and people in space. It was that powerful. It is time, Andrew, for the weekly obsessions. It is. And it does 
Well, I, I say this every week, but I feel it every week. I'm always a little afraid to ask this question. Andrew, what are you obsessed with this week? Well, actually, this week's obsession goes back a few weeks to when we were talking about vinyl in space. And if you remember, we talked about the Voyager Golden Record that went out in 1977. But I've been thinking more about this record. So for people that haven't seen it, this is a record where on one side, it's got all of these recordings of people on Earth and aspects of being human on Earth, and it's designed for aliens to learn about us. But on the other side, it's got instructions on how to make the record player to play it. Um, and what fascinates me about these instructions is they're beautifully elegant. But I'm pretty sure if I gave that record to one of my students and they didn't have the internet, they would not have the first idea of what to do with them. And I'm sitting here thinking, if we can't work out how to interpret this record, how on earth will aliens do this? Well, you have a point and shouldn't... I mean, is, is there not pictures? Is there not? There, there are pictures. I, so the key to this is <laughs> you have to understand the oscillation frequency of one of the transition levels in a hydrogen atom. And there's this little picture of two little circles, one with an up and one with a down sort of pointer on them. And now, if you know, if you're somebody that studies these things and you know all about hydrogen and, and transition um, energy transitions and wavelengths, you might might just be able to work it out. But I must confess, I would never in a million years work out what those two little circles with dots and lines in them mean. And I, I'm actually, I was trying hard to contain myself, um, had this image in my mind of basically aliens opening this box. The first thing they see is the directions and they just like throw them over their shoulder. Okay? <laughs> right, right. I know. Or they think dinner plate. <laughs> anyway, but that's what I've been obsessing about. Totally trivial, but it does keep me awake at night. At some point, the fact that you have puzzled over this now means that when we send out the next record, it's going to have <laughs> decent instructions. Anyway, Katie, what have you been obsessing about? I watched Netflix not to procrastinate, right? Mm -hmm. But eating dinner with my husband, we decided to turn on Netflix. And the first thing that came up was a program about black holes. Mm -hmm. And it was a movie about the scientists that imaged the first, that did the mm. first imaging of a black yes. hole. And this movie showed two aspects of figuring out how to image black holes. One was the mathematical team that's solving equations. And the other one was a, the physicists who are basically organizing a series of, I don't know how many telescopes around the earth that basically right. made a telescope the size of the earth by taking telescopes from around the earth and getting them right, all and operating. connecting them together yes exactly but in this movie they show the discussions i mean stephen hawking would have these retreat weekends when he would invite friends and colleagues and and they would go you'd talk about problems that they're solving mm -hmm. together and this was one of the ones that they worked on for years and seeing this interaction and how people i just thought you'd puzzle over an equation and that would it just be this thing that went on in one person's head and yeah. you know it, in your world maybe it's it's always no, been no, collaborative. no no I, I th th this is great because there's the myth of the lone scientist especially if you watch too many movies where you have this one scientist who saves the world and everything depends on them reality is not like that and you must have found that in in your science days that science is teamwork absolutely so getting to our big question how can we make space more accessible to disabled people. 
On last week's show, we spoke with Anne Capusta, the mission director of Astro Access, which is a non-profit project that's promoting disability inclusion for space exploration. They're working to create a future where people with disabilities become astronauts, working and living in space. And playing. Playing is important, okay? Playing is important. You may know the story, at least some of the story, of the early years of the US space program and those early astronauts, these incredibly fit men. And they were all men. Chosen to be the first humans to travel to space. They were selected because they were thought to be these heroic examples of human perfection, or at least peak performance. Maybe you've seen the 1983 movie The Right Stuff, or read the book it's based on by Tom Wolfe. These men were thought to have this stuff. Well, fortunately, we've expanded our ideas about who has the right stuff and who can go to space or be on the Supreme Court or be the CEO of a major company or a star athlete. But space is still a disabling environment that excludes too many people. Here's the thing. It's not that space is disabling or exclusionary. It's the environments, the spaceships, the space stations the spacesuits that we've designed and built so far, it's these environments that are disabling and exclusionary. And Astro Access is looking to change this by taking diverse groups of disabled people, they're called Astro Access ambassadors, on parabolic flights. These flights are basically large passenger airplanes with seats removed that fly in big up and down arcs to produce brief periods of microgravity just like what you'd experience in space. Today, in part two of our series, we talk with Sina Baram. Sina is a computer scientist and the president and founder of Prime Access Consulting. It's a company that works to design and implement solutions to make environments, experiences, and technology inclusive of disabled people. In 2012, Sina was recognized by President Obama as a White House champion of change. Sina, who happens to be blind, was one of the ambassadors of Astro Access's first parabolic flights, working to discover how to make space travel more inclusive. He's also a fascinating and, quite frankly, inspiring person to talk with. Oh, it says then brief banter. Do we oh. need brief banter? <laughs> Sina Baram, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thank you so much for having me. Sina and I actually know each other from training for the zero gravity flight and actually going on that flight together. But Sina, I want to go sort of back or up another level and tell us about what you do. Sure. I run an inclusive design firm called Prime Access Consulting, or PAC, P-A-C for short. Um, we've been around for about 11, 12 years. I've been in the space for about 20, 22 years. And um really looking at how to make environments welcoming to the widest possible audience. And those could be digital environments like websites or virtual reality and augmented reality and holograms and 360-degree videos and projection mapping and stuff like that. Or it can be physical environments, like think of the gallery of a museum or uh, a building. How do we how do we welcome people into these spaces and design for everybody in mind, no matter where they fall on the vector of human difference? Well, Sina, you've talked about the social model of disability. Can you describe that to me? There's lots of models of disability, and people have written entire dissertations on this topic. So I don't want to present that I'm summarizing the entire field, and I encourage people to to do some reading. But 
two popular models are the medical model and the social or environmental model of disability. So in the medical model, right, you like, you know, break your arm, you go to the doctor, hopefully it gets fixed. But if it doesn't, what do we do as a society, right? We, we, we put the burden of disability on the individual, right? Mm-hmm. We refer to it as an impairment, etc. In the social or environmental model of disability, we refer and we think of the environment as being disabling, not the individual as being disabled. So it's not your fault that you can't access the building because you're using crutches that day. It's because there's no door opening button or no braille on the label or the website isn't accessible or there's no sign language, this kind of thing. One of the things that you talked about was, you know, even, you know, learning, learning to read and making sure you could read as much as you needed to in in your life. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about the fact that we have been leaving out some of the best problem solvers on the earth. I totally agree. I mean, one out of four people in the world have a disability. Um, your uh, chances of experiencing a disability over the age of 35 is one out of two. That's 50%. Now, that's a lot of brains that we're leaving on the table, so to speak, that could be helping us solve amazing problems from space travel, ocean exploration, neuroscience, climate change, just problems that face us as a species that we need to solve. And so I think it's a huge opportunity cost, uh, if nothing else, forget the right thing to do, the moral justification, all these other things, um, to not include as many humans as we possibly can to to get us to the future we want to build together. But then if I was going to pick people to go, I would want to pick people who, I mean, things are going to happen unexpectedly up there. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to pick people who are going to be determined, who are going to say, okay, so it wasn't like the plan, but we still have to get there. We still yes. have to do this. And it seems like disabled people face that every single day. Every single day, right? I mean, if you want the best problem solvers on earth, it's people with disabilities because every single day the plan doesn't go as expected. The bus doesn't stop in the right place. The person doesn't show up that's supposed to be doing the ASL interpretation. Um, The wayfinding solution on your phone isn't working and you still have to make it to that really important meeting or to a date or whatever the case may be. And so if you want folks that uh, won't be phased by even problems that are in any other way magnanimous, you know, huge orders of magnitude, that it's persons with disabilities. And um, I think that also there's another point of what you said, which is that things will go wrong up there. So we should be building in strategic redundancies into our systems and environments, not only to make them not disabling, but also to make them so that anyone can use them with a variety of modalities. If you're not able to see, or if something's just in your eye, or if your eye is busy tracking some other a very important piece of instrumentation, wouldn't it be great to be able to receive information through your ears? So, you know, there's there's things we're leaving out that we really should be utilizing for everyone. The side effect is just that, oh, by the way, it also happens to include a bunch of people with disabilities. It seems like we've already gone down the path of not getting things that right in space. But from what you're saying, we need a complete shift in how we think about that space environment. Can you say a little bit more about where you think we've gone wrong in the past so far and how we need to change? I think there's a couple of ways of looking at that, right? Look at what we did with airplanes. The aisle is too narrow for a wheelchair. The mm-hmm. seating arrangements, just all these, all these things. They're using touch screens uh, without any screen reading or text-to-speech support so that if you're blind, you, you can't even so much as uh, use the call button on certain flights, right? I mean, these are just really critical misses, and they don't need to be. They are, they are not even 
requiring money to fix, just a few pixels being changed around and some design thinking at the right time in the process. That's where we've really gone wrong, is the upstream design process. If I can just interject there, that seems to be so important that this is not about putting massive resources into changing things. Yeah. It's about having that forethought to think about how you want to include people in the design of something from the get-go. Um, how do we change that whole culture of actually thinking before we do? Yeah, yeah. I think it comes down to, to will and then a variety of tactics to exercise that will. So we first need um, people in uh, leadership positions to... Uh, get on board from a policy and standards adoption perspective of this idea of inclusive design, whether they want to approach it from equity, from strategic redundancies, return on investment, return on institutional goals. It, it, uh, you can have a th list of 30 uh, justifications, all of which are evidence-based and true about why this is a good thing to do. I don't care how people get there. I just need mm -hmm. them to get there. Mm -hmm. Once we have that environment, that milieu of inclusion, it changes the conversation. And we've seen this happen. It changes the conversation to how do we make that thing we've already come up with accessible to of course it's inclusive. In fact, why isn't, the only meeting is why isn't that thing accessible, right? And you can replace other words for accessible, like strategically redundant in case of vision loss or hearing loss or lack right. of usage of upper body. So I, I think that's that's part of it. The other part of it is that we need to do a better job reducing a, a stigma and other ways of othering within our society when it comes to disability, because there's a huge fear quotient. And that fear quotient then biases everybody from key stakeholders and decision makers to funders to politicians to everyday folks. And that then creates an environment in which folks with disabilities are not given opportunities in order to then you know, move this conversation forward. So I, I want to get uh, your experience with Astro Access and the Zero Gravity flight. So I'm, I'm the outsider here. Uh, you've been up on that flight. Katie was there with you. I can only imagine what it was like. But can you walk us through the process, sort of everything leading up to it and then what you experienced in it? So... Uh, we show up, you know, there's a, a training uh, that we we go through in terms of this is what to expect, you know, meet everybody. So then we, um, uh, let's see here, the day before the flight, we got to tour the plane. This is really important because it let us be familiar with the environment, mm -hmm. but there's actually a, a, a huge uh, benefit in addition to that, which is that it let us set up the experiments and and things that we needed to do to modify the craft in order to conduct um, those those investigations that we were going to do during the flight uh, and familiarized us with the space. So multiple wins there. And then we, we took the flight um, and that was... Um, I mean, exciting and amazing. Uh, I think I, I've described it before as like equal parts bliss and disorientation, right? <laughs> Euphoria and uh, just oh, what's going on? Um, and and you, so, yeah. and so, just just describe what it's like. So you go through these parabolas. Mm -hmm. I mean. I've, what is the experience going from gravity to microgravity to gravity to microgravity? Yeah, you, awesome. Um, it's awesome. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like, you feel the surly bonds of Earth slip away. Um, you you feel happy. You feel joy wash over you. Um, you're floating. I mean, you're straight up floating. Like, uh, it really can't be under uh, sold here. Like, this is one of those rare things where it's it's a little hard to be hyperbolic. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, about the the description of this stuff because it's just that amazing. Um, 
but I'll tell you. I'm going to jump in, Cena. That when asked if he would go again, the quote that I wrote down was, "No, no, not enough. Yes, I will take one thousand more, same time and place, and I will show up." <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I think he liked it. I yes, <laughs> agreed. I love that, Cena. <laughs> agreed. Any any time. I just I. I I can only imagine what that's like in a longer um, duration, you know, like being on the space station, Katie, et cetera. Like, I just, I, I can only imagine. But, it, but there it is just... there is this like cyclic, cyclic kind of thing where that, that I think our, our folks listening don't always know about that where basically this plane is flying like a porpoise, you know, so it's flying up. And then when it noses over, you have about 30 seconds of floating around in microgravity. And then when it pulls up again, that's when wherever the floor is, that is where you're going to be. This is fascinating because as a blind person, you hold certain things to be invariant. Generally speaking, the ground does not move. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, buildings stay put, right? These kinds of things. Generally speaking, your orientation, your directionality is under your own control. None of those things are true in microgravity. So you could have a little bit of rotation and not even know it, right? Because you're not getting that vestibular feedback about spinning, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a slight rotation. Yet, that means that you might be 30 degrees away from where you thought you were going to be. So all of a sudden, we have to rethink the entire methodology that is used for wayfinding, station keeping, communications, because it's a really loud environment. All of those things change. Now, I, I love that. I, I, I thrive off of that kind of situation. But it is straight up disorienting. I just think in a beautiful way, but it is disorienting. The other thing that honestly was more confusing to me than that, though, I, I have to say, because I, I got, I started getting used to that really quickly, I feel. But what was confusing was in, um, and this, I, I'm told, doesn't happen, you know, obviously in orbit or, or, or that sort of thing, unless if things are going horribly wrong, um, is that you also experience negative Gs, right? Like when it hears like hits an air pocket or something, you sometimes will float up even though you didn't push off from something, even though you did not uh, perform that equal and opposite reaction. And so all of a sudden, you might be in the corner and, and not know how you got there. And that honestly was the, the more disorienting part. Thinking about what would be different I think about those senses that I assume for a blind person are enhanced, the, the, the sound. And up in space on the space station, it's actually noise is a problem up there too. It's a very loud white noise environment that we try to monitor and, and we learn to live in this sort of very loud environment. And yet I would think someone who's dependent on their hearing their whole life would actually be better able to navigate there, so to speak. But potentially, or or find it even more painful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's there's that aspect of it. Oh, good because point. maybe sound is not your primary modality, mm -hmm. or maybe we need to just do a better job making quieter space stations and also filtering, uh, you know, the, the repetitive sounds out of the environment using things like active noise cancellation, but with transparency, so we can still hear things. Right. So there's a lot of interesting problems to be explored there. But there again. What I just suggested, that's not just helpful for blind people, that's helpful for absolutely everybody. And it strikes me that we're at a point now in human history where we're looking at designing new space stations. Um, we're moving out of this um, government-funded era of, of big science in space to something that's more commercial. It seems like we're right at the cusp of being able to rethink and redesign those space habitats. Uh, how should we be doing that? How should we be being more inclusive in those designs? We need to think about it up front. I mean, this is really, it really does come down to that. You know, we've, we've had the pleasure, like with my company, working with multi-trillion dollar companies and, you know, 
one-person nonprofits with like virtually no budget whatsoever. Mm. This is not a money problem, right? Especially the scales we're talking about, the level of resources needed is like 0.01% of a budget, right? It's just it's negligible. Right. So we need to do, but we need to do the sequencing right. It, it's not a resourcing problem. It is a sequencing problem. So like you said, commercial space stations, other things are starting to get a lot of steam right now. We need to be thinking about that stuff now, not in 2030 when the thing is only a few years delayed and maybe it's going to go up by 2035. That's not the time to be thinking about that stuff. What did you learn on the Astro Access flight and, and are hoping to maybe learn more about on the, on the future flights that is going to help with those direct design inputs? I think that one of the things that was really clear to me is those invariants I spoke of earlier not being true means that we need to rethink the affordances that we use in our environments to surface information. So what I mean by that is imagine a unidirectional fabric, um, like horsehair something like that, right? Where it feels different depending on which direction you're petting it, which direction you're rubbing against it. Put that on the walls, right? Mm -hmm. Because then no matter which direction of travel you're going in, you have a canonical source of truth about, oh, nope, I got flipped around in that hallway. Because all of a sudden, we have to accommodate for that space, right? Um, other things that that immediately came to mind for me are things like the audio environment. How do you um, design within those constraints so that we can still use audio as an affordance. For example, one method that I immediately wanted to explore was a vibrotactile feedback, right? But where a vest, harness, belt, whatever, what have you, have directional vibrotactile feedback that always hones you. You always have your north, right? And then over time, you can actually start developing almost a subconscious direction of that. So maybe you don't need the belt as much. That experiment's been done here on Earth. And when the belt was removed, um, actually the person still retained a knowledge of where North was for for some duration of time, so I'd love to kind of do that, right? Um, and you know, canonical North in space, obviously, whatever stern <laughs> pointed somewhere. Um, and 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 that to me is like those are the things that I just deeply want to explore because they could a help everybody, but b they widen the bandwidth. Right now, we are we are sipping information, in my opinion, through a straw. Whether you can see fully able bodied, whatever, through a straw. And and I I want you know the fire hose, right? And then we can filter on an individual basis to maximize each person's potential in that space. So when you look at who's doing this, obviously you are doing this, advocating for this sort of design approach um, and working on it with your company. I, who else is doing it? Where are the where are the degree programs that are training the next generation of designers and thinkers here? Do they exist yet, or where should they be? For people who are already working at design companies and realize, you know, I've been missing a really big, big boat. Yeah. I'd like to think about this differently. Where can they learn? Well, I'm, I'm hiring, so. <laughs> <that's> a, um, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, let's see here. Well, there's a couple of answers, right? So one is like you might think of some of the usual suspect, you know, like RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, you know, places like that where they have these design programs. But I'll tell you, they don't have inclusive design programs there, right? Mm. Like it's not a dedicated discipline. Um, even look at the computer science programs. Imagine all of the interfaces being created in the world. Think of all of the boot camps, the coding boot camps that people go to and then go become web developers. Most of them don't include 
incorporate even the basics of accessibility. And that's why some poor restaurant has an inaccessible website. It's not because they don't want to serve disabled people. It's not because of any kind of malice on their part. They just hired a developer and trusted them to design a, a website that everybody can use. But this is not taught. So we need to solve this problem upstream in academic programs, in licensure for universities and accreditation so that we make accessibility and inclusion a success criteria. This is the fundamental thing I think we need to shift is, and that's why I said senior stakeholders need to get on board with this. We need to make inclusion a, a basically an ability to fail something, to be a go, no go criteria, because then other systems have already been put in place to accommodate that, to make sure there's not slippage and deadlines, to make sure there's resourcing. But we first need that will to set this as an objective so that all these other implementation-related systems we've got in place, logistics we've got in place, can be then harnessed to work towards that goal, just like all the other goals, safety, security, what have you. So I, I want to sort of extend down from there and, and ask you the really big question. Um, what is your dream for what's the future of inclusive space exploration looks like 30 years from now? <laughs> Let's see here. So uh, 20, 30 years from now, I'm going to hope that we've had at least one more exponential jump uh, in, in machine learning and related technologies. And I'm going to hope we're, we've had maybe one more semi-exponential jump in uh, things like solid state and so on and so forth, right? So that mm -hmm. I'm going I'm to hand wave a little bit on the material science and on the computer science. So what that tells me is that I'd like to live in an environment in which the environment is not only inclusive and not disabling. That's the current goal. But for 20 to 30 years from now, I want the environment to be responsive and ubiquitous. I want computation to be ubiquitous so that we can use it as a tool in order to amplify our efforts as humans. That means walking into a room and being able for my you know little implant underneath my ear or bone conduction or however you want to get the information, it could be brain-computer interface, to tell me who's in that room to sonify the space using non-speech audio to give a layout of spatial information, right? To immediately interface with any technology that I sit in front of so that I'm not using some, you know, arbitrary uh, written a uh, million years ago screen reading program, but interfacing with something natively because it was created in a responsive way so that it doesn't matter if you can't see or can't hear or can't you know, use your hands. It's simply a semantic interface that then adapts to you. Now, taking this back to space travel, you can imagine that all of those things are incredibly in important when performing space travel. Let's say we've gotten a little bit better about our ways of, you know, getting to Mars and, and that sort of thing. Um, so if you're on a ship for, for a few months or six months time, what does that look like in terms of navigation? What does that look like in terms of the environment responding to you and you being able to communicate with people seamlessly? So imagine someone who's a sign language user. Uh, there's nothing that says they can't be able to use sign language. And then somebody else can just simply glance at them and get the words appearing in their head. Like we have the tech for that now, right? right. It's just nascent right now. And I want that stuff to be more ubiquitous. See, now I think that, I know we were talking about further ahead in the future, but the steps that you're taking right now, you and others with Astro Access, it becomes newsworthy, people notice. And I think it actually elevates the future that you are talking about and working towards by making people see that space is, in, is inclusive now and that it's getting better for everyone to go. 
Yep. And we're seeing some steps there, right? Uh, the European Space Agency um, uh, had a call for uh, uh, paranauts, if I'm not mistaken, right? So this this would be Correct. astronauts with disabilities, right? Uh, NASA hasn't hasn't deemed fit to do that yet, but but here's to hoping. Um, the commercial space folks are are definitely looking into this. We saw the participation during Astro Access, and you know they. I really do think this is a almost, it's really weird to say about this group of people, so don't take me wrong, but lack of imagination, right? And it's not something you often hear about uh, spacefaring folk, mm-hmm. but it's a lack of imagination of of how their space, how their lowercase s space, how their, how their domain could be improved by involving all these folks, but then also by the innovations that come for adapting our environments. Look at the, the QWERTY keyboard, speech recognition, uh, text-to-speech output, and even things like the swipe keyboard, all of those things came out of uh, uh, assistive technologies. Every single one of those things came out of assistive technologies. And so just like how the space program has had wonderful benefits here on Earth in terms of the tech that was invented, assistive technologies have been a huge driver of innovation. It just doesn't get thought of that way. You know, blind people had talking GPS in the early 90s, way before TomTom and Garmin and all that stuff came out because we needed it to move around. Well, and also the use of these things in space by disabled people mm-hmm. is is actually going to elevate. I mean, I don't think it's actually NASA that you need to convince or the engineers there are like, hey, I think actually if you spoke to people there like myself, mm-hmm. you would find that they would rather have more people going and yes. more different kinds of people going. But it is actually, I think, the world as a whole, everyone that needs yeah. to understand how how little it takes to be more inclusive and how much better off all of us will be. But by big examples, doing things in space, I think that you are really opening those doors. I, I hope so. Um, uh, there's a long way to go. And so, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of work to do. So I, I hope that, you know, especially people listening to this uh, realize that it, it does not take being a senator or the head of NASA or an astronaut or even a scientist or anything like that to, to move us forward as a people in being more inclusive. There are things that every single person can do independent of any role, station, identity that, that really can move us forward to, to being in that future that you just described, Katie. Sina Barab, I I sincerely hope that there are people listening to this who are inspired to think differently, to act differently, and to even follow different careers as they make this reality. This has been an inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck on uh, the second flight. Thank you so much. I, I hope to be on it. Mission Interplanetary is a podcast. We're in audio format. So you can't actually see Katie's cat right now. He's marvelous. And we can't show you pictures of space. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. Okay, Katie, what do you think that was? Well, at first I thought, okay, it is the Mars helicopter. 
Okay. You know, the little going helicopter very, very ingenuity. Well, no, because it's like it's like going and then, but then it stopped and that would it's be like bad. It's like a whop, 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 whip, And whip, I know, yes. I know it's been doing well, right? I think it's right. so cool though that we have a microphone on the Perseverance rover. Mm-hmm, yes. I mean, the sound, the actual sounds of Mars. Andrew, I have no idea, but if I was listening to it all night, I don't think I would have a peaceful night's sleep. And it doesn't sound magical, mystical, or colorful, or ethereal to me. Well, actually, that's pretty good because this is a pretty violent event. Uh-oh. And it's actually one that ties in perfectly with your obsession for this week. That was the sound of two black holes colliding. No! Yes! So everything ties together here, and you had no idea we were gonna, that we were going to get to this point. So the collision caused gravitational waves. That's what you're hearing. Um, that whop, 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 and whip, 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 except it's, it's been sort of changed slightly. But it's incredible that we're hearing this. Gravitational waves are ripples in the very fabric of space-time itself. They were originally predicted by Einstein in the last century, but it wasn't until 2015 that gravitational waves were actually first observed by scientists at the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, which is such a long name that we call it LIGO. The waves we heard were caused by the collision and merging of two black holes, each around, get this, 30 times the mass of our sun. This collision occurred around 1.3 billion years ago. And I still can't get my head around these figures. It briefly released around 50 times more energy than all the light in the visible universe, which is just mind-blowing. The blip you're hearing is the gravitational waves converted to sound waves at two different frequencies, which is where you get the blip, blip, and blop, blop. This was the sound of an event so powerful that it sent ripples through space-time itself. I, I love I love the way, basically, when you build different instruments that allow you to see, quote-unquote, in, right. in different ways, then you, you, know, you learn more. I mean, uh, you know, the Chandra telescope helped under, helped us understand so much about black holes and and yet that was a long time ago that was 20 right. years ago that telescope launched and and the, and the the thought back then was if you build it we will see right right, right. but this has been the history of so much science we build e- equipment and we use it to see things we couldn't see before. And it just changes the way we perceive not only the universe, but ourselves. So yeah, it was. Awesome. So, yeah, it was. so let's listen to that again. it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Get your friends to leave reviews, your kids. Seriously, we will read all reviews. Write to us from our website, missioninterplanetary.com. Follow us on Twitter at ii underscore asu and send us a tweet, comment, question, and please recommend us to your friends. That would be awesome. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garavi. Our sound designer and engineer is Stephen Christensen, and our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.